And we are live for the First Strike Podcast. This is KYT back with my fellow First Strike host back from Players Tour Phoenix. Before we got to start the show, I'll plug our sponsor, faceofacegames.com, the number one place to get your Magic of the Gathering singles. This week we're running a special promo to celebrate the fact that it's Valentine's Day this Friday. So we came up with an ad that's like <laughs> put a ring on it. Um, so 15% off masterpieces, invocations, a bunch of other cool stuff and and of course, the ad notably is featuring Soul Ring. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be back on the show. It seems like it's been it's been a while uh, since I've talked to these guys, and I can't wait to get down right to it. Um, if for people who are just jumping on the stream, if you can tell us if the volume is okay, if everything seems to be playing and no technical difficulties, that'd be nice because this is the first time I'm able to show all four of us at the same time on the screen. So that's a that's a sweet little thing. Um, before we jump into Phoenix, let's jump to today's big news. The fact that Hasbro announced, or uh, from, from the sources that I've read, that there will be a mo mobile client in 2020. I was surprised by that date, the, the year. I thought maybe if they were going to announce it, some were down the line. But not only that they announced a mobile client, which I thought was unlikely, it's coming this year. So super surprising shock to me. Uh, your reaction, Elliot? I was actually also shocked. This is something we've definitely talked about on the show before. I have no idea how they're going to scale Arena down to the mobile screen size. I'm I'm pretty confident as soon as you have more than 10 creatures in play, it's going to be absolutely miserable. And it's going to be impossible to play without using the auto tapper. But that's why that that's one of the reasons that feature exists. So I, I don't know if I'm excited to try it as much as I'm excited to see people complain about it on Twitter because... I don't know how long my phone battery could be able to last playing Arena. Uh, we, we talked about how we didn't think it was conceivable, uh, like you mentioned, but also that our theory was that maybe they would do what like League of Legends plans to do, which is sort of port the game, the main game that they have to mobile, but have it be also like a different game, its own little world, uh, which might still be the case here, but like we're, we're not getting the, the details right now, right? I mean, it could be that, but I think the quote was that Magic Arena is coming to mobile in 2020, which uh, I feel like if it was like a dumbed down version of the game or like a mobile only game, it would have a different name because at the very least it would be misleading to say Arena is coming to mobile and then it comes out as like a, a dumbed down product with max seven creatures in play kind of thing, like uh, more Hearthstone-like. I think the general reaction is everyone's happy, but cautiously optimistic. Uh, how, how are you feeling about this news, Andy? <laughs> um, like, it sounds like the obvious move to, to make more money. Because, like, <laughs> getting to play on your phone, I don't know, will get, like, people to spend more money. Because, like, that's the kind of game sometimes people would want to play. I just, I've never thought Magic could scale well into a mobile game. Like, even playing Hearthstone, to me, on my phone is, like, monotonous and not worth it. And Magic is much more complicated than Hearthstone. So I'm interested to see how they uh, put it in place. And I've, I fear that it's just going to run like garbage on your cell phone. Because, I don't know, like your cell phone's not as powerful as your computer. And Arena has problems on like computers, like really good computers all the time. So I would consider myself like, I don't know. I'm actually almost pessimistic about this one. I just can't possibly see it being like a really good product in 2020, considering there's still problems with Arena in 2020 and that I don't know how you get it on a phone 
while it like still doesn't function like perfectly on a computer. Hopefully like they got this like other development team involved and I don't know, they're maybe they're dedicating full time to this and uh, hopefully it works out. I really hope it does because uh, it's going to be a good money-making machine. That's for sure. John, the, the other news I'll go to you on this is like positive all around. Seems like magic is still surprising, surprising to me that it's still like on the upward trend, positive growth, except they, they mentioned MTGO and that might um, lead to it going to, to, I don't know. It might, it might be a thing of the past in short order, but as someone who is spending a lot of time on it, uh, do you make anything of, of the news today? Well, <clears throat> what, what the, uh, I, I think uh, MTG Goldfish guy said uh, parsed was that uh, the overall growth in the tabletop was pretty high and Arena's growth um, was higher, but at the expense of MTGO. I don't think that uh, Magic Online is going to be dying here. I think there's clearly a, a, a place for both programs and the enfranchised and the spiked, uh, the spiked players are going to be playing MTGO no matter what. And I'm, it might be naive, but I'm, I'm having a, a pretty hopeful view that um, Arena is going to be um, Arena is going to be introducing a lot of new players into the eternal formats. Potentially, I know that Pioneer uh, they've already said that is going to it's the intention is that it'll be eventually on Arena. I believe that's what it is, and hopefully, if people uh, newer people you know that picked up the game through Arena like Pioneer, hopefully they. Uh, they'll grow to like find out and like like modern and legacy, for example, and the whole pie will be bigger, sort of thing. So, uh, certainly, certainly, it might it might hurt a little bit short term. Although, like I'm I'm pretty, I mean, pretty skeptical. Like it's going to uh, Magic Online is going to be obsolete in the short term, even. But uh, I'm hopeful that the entire um, ecosystem will be um, better for it long term. That's my view. Uh, Ellie, do you, have, do you have the same type of feeling? I'm like. Go on Twitter and someone says, uh, in quotes, a bit of a decline is often code for a catastrophic drop. Uh, so are they just possibly saying the right things just so that MTGO just doesn't instantly crash? I, in my heart of hearts, I, I feel like there's no way Magic Online totally disappears at any point. Uh, but at the same time, when I, when I like think about it and sit, sat down and think about it earlier, is that if Arena is dragging everyone towards that platform for standard and draft, and the main thing propping up people playing Moto recently is Pioneer, all these Pioneer cards were already in circulation. So the only money they could possibly be making is from tournament entry and like, it's it just exactly tournament entry versus before I'd, I'd imagine somebody had to be cracking new standard packs to get all the cards and there were probably a lot more people drafting casually and for fun opening the new packs which is probably making them a lot more money than just like league entries is my guess so i think that's probably the case of arena stealing or offsetting the loss from from magic online is just because people aren't people aren't buying packs of theros beyond death from the magic online store and people are less likely to be drafting and, and mm, that makes at sense. that point i don't know if arena is going to like totally at some point take over from magic online you know they have the plan to put in pioneer and that's already a great undertaking because you know there's a lot of cards in pioneer not on arena and but there's 
almost nearly infinitely more in modern and legacy that are not on arena. So I don't even know if it's feasible for them to do something like that, to expand that far. So I, I'd imagine arena has, or sorry, I'd imagine that Moto has to stick around at some point. And I don't know, maybe what would be cool is if wizards sort of revamped the, the way the economy works on Moto. And instead of owning cards like you do in paper, they offered their own subscription style. Um, and like, I could tell you slam dunk, a lot of people would pay $25 a month to play Moto with a master collection. I think more people would do that than use mana traders and such now. And it's probably not even close. And it's just yeah. like, they're just letting mana traders and card hoarder just make infinite money off of owning cards that, you know, theoretically Watsi can print for free. Hey, that's a good point. They could, they could just be doing that themselves. Um, but, but I know recently, Andy, you've, you've loved MTGO, so. Yeah, I still do. And, I, and like, it's not just because of the program, though. It's like the offerings and, uh, like, the way that the economy and prize structure works on Moto is kind of what keeps me going and why I love Moto. So, like, if they, like, revamped Arena and I could play, like, Arena tournaments that matter all the time for actual things that I can sell, then I would just play Arena. But the problem is that's just not the way it is at all. Like I don't get anything back from my investment in arena, but my investment in magic online is like, like I make, like I make a bunch of money just playing magic online and I can't do that with <laughs> arena. <laughs> I love it. Andrew awkward. Remember makes bank on MTGO John. Yeah. You um, want ticks? I got ticks. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to everything at this point, Elliot, with the, like the mobile, they just took me completely by surprise. I didn't see it coming. So whichever direction they take FTGO, I'll just, I'm just going to be keeping an open mind because I expect uh, they could go uh, either way. Uh, moving on to the other hot, so this is just many hot topics before we get to uh, your tournament. The most, a bigger one was Frank Karsten uh, tweeting out that, um, He's no longer able to publish all GP deck lists or provide GP win rate analysis. Um, I've like it was uh, posted on on Reddit as well, and then someone mentioned that this type of thing has been uh, enforced or around for a while now. That's why uh, when we had like it reminds me of Sean Gifford when he was parsing all the MTGO data and posting it on, on the website that he bought from a guy, he was no longer, he was, I think, told that he was no longer able to provide that type of data. And that was years ago. Um, John, uh, as someone that loves data, what do you make of this? I think my, my, uh, you say I love data, but um, I think- I, I do too. <laughs> I think perhaps a lot of people might, may uh, be surprised by my thought here, but I think I'm fine if Watsi doesn't release all the data. And here's my reason. Um, the, the, the speed at which information travels in 2019 and 2020 magic is nowhere near uh, the level at which it traveled in like 2010 or even before that, you know, where people are passing through like inquest magazines or, you know, the, there's like online forums and like message boards and all that. And it's, it's pretty alarming. Like new tech will never be hidden for more than a week, for example. My take is that um, releasing all the data and uh, giving the, all the data miners the edge and then like having them proliferate the information is pretty unhealthy, actually. Um, I don't know about a lot of people, but um, 
part of the charm and part of the fun I find is that me trying to break and solve a format with incomplete information. Um, also, um, the, if you release all the information out there, you know, that severely uh, disadvantages the uh, less enfranchised and less serious uh, and uh, devoted players, uh, which makes up a lot, like a significant uh, majority of the player pool, for example. You know, people who are spikes or people who know programming and who mine these types of data will have the advantage. So, like, I don't think it's in Watsi's best interest to do so, uh, too. So, um, I, I'm actually totally fine with them just restricting the information to, like, you know, top 32 or something reasonable. So, give us, like, a carrot, give us, like, a variety, and make sure that we see, like, some information, and, you know, we'll figure out the rest. I don't think that um, releasing all the information and having a format solved uh, is a healthy thing. And now you're, you might rebut by saying that, hey, Watsi, it's not our fault that you guys keep breaking formats with, like, cards like, uh, not Uro, but uh, Oko and Once Upon a Time, etc. But I think I think like both can be true at the same time. Like you can have a fair and balanced format with a fair and balanced say, card pool and still uh, ha uh, have it be unhealthy to release an entire uh, pool of information. So that's where I'm at. So uh, just to be clear, for the time being, you'd be cool with like all GPs just releasing the, the top 32 deck list? Is yeah, that like get, the amount? Get, Give us the top 32. Give us like a glimpse of the winner's metagame and we'll figure out the rest. I think that's part of the fun. Theory crafting and just like extrapolating and taking, making the best inferences from a limited uh, amount of information. Andy's nodding over there. Do you agree with that? Yeah, like it's like people forgot what happened when we had all the information. Things got solved in like two weeks and the format was stale for a very long time. Look at Pioneer now. Like Pioneer a week ago is totally different than Pioneer a week before that. And like, so like going into the Pro Tour, it was like all about Niv-Mizzet. And then the Pro Tours in uh, Nagoya and Brussels happened. And then Niv-Mizzet, completely unplayable, dead deck. And then the next week, it's all about um, basically uh, just Inverter and uh, Lotus Breach. And that happened in a week. And I think that kind of stuff... Uh, would happen way too fast for it to like at least be interesting if they released everything. I think they made the conscious decision to not release everything before when they only released 5-0 deck lists with like, I don't know, with 10 different cards or whatever, or more than 10 cards different from each other. And I think that's the right move, even though it sucks because like I love to see more deck lists. It's just, it's the move that makes the most sense to keep magic as fresh as long as possible while still giving people like decks to look at to buy and I don't know, playing around the metagame and get in the, get in the dojo and think about what they should, uh, how they should attack everything. <laughs> All right. Uh, Elliot, do you think they should release a bit more info or not? I, I always love more data. I think that it was a little bit extreme uh, what we had before, like going back to the cons of Tarkir and Theros standard era which is, you know, when I got into the game, you used to be able to go on MTG Goldfish and you used to be able to look up your Abzan mid-range deck and know that if you're playing Read the Bones, you were all of a sudden 43% against Mono Red, but if you cut that for some other card, you're 46%. You used to be able to have it all. And, and I think that's way too extreme, but I think at the rate that Grand Prix happen, you know, it's something like one a month per format maximum. I just think that that's not a big enough data set to completely solve a format at any given time. And it's just, you know, going to nudge people in the right direction because 
you know, learnings, for example, uh, the big takeaway from day one of, of the PT was that Lotus Breach is, is insane. You know, it ended up putting, I, I think it was two copies into the top eight. Day one, it's winner, it was like 63%. But I would really like to know, for example, a 63% win rate at the highest level of play at the Pro Tour, where you have players like Michael Jacobs, uh, you know, Sam Party, those guys all playing it, is does that translate down to the Grand Prix level? You know, can a player like me, John, Andy, or even, you know, an FNM player pick up Lotus Breach and do reasonably with it? Or do you need to have a galaxy brain and, you know, mm-hmm. remember that Hidden Strengths has Cypher and that you can attack with a Vizier and combo inside combat, which is a story I heard about Michael Jacobs. Would I could never think of that. So, you know, is, is Lotus Breach really the bee's knees? Or, you know, does it turn out that when you're playing at a human level that mono red or inverter is is going to be much better off for you so i I just don't think that any one grand prix is enough data to to really solve a format and make it stagnant and i think it could help form people's opinions because i'd imagine there's a lot of people going to play a tournament next week going to play lotus breach and, and find themselves disappointed just to be clear is this just for the gps or is this recommended across the board? I, I think this is GP specific. Okay. Yeah, so PTs all, will still yeah. have all the deck lists. Mm-hmm. And I guess like now people will be more like John, do you think people will be more looking at other tournaments like let's say like the SCG series to, to find more data? I think they already do, and arguably, like the data set we have right now, with like the top, the top uh, deck list from like top thirty-two or whatever the cut is that a CG publishes, is more more um, more valuable than um, just having the all nine hundred deck lists, for example, or, whatnot, or all nine hundred archetypes in GP, anyways. So, like, you 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 obviously more data is good, and you know what? In a perfect world, I love to have more data, but I also understand why it might not be good for everyone. But also, I think a lot of people misuse data, anyways. And you know, you can you can you can uh, use the data and make your own conclusions. But that, at the end of the day, it's up to you to interpret the data correctly. So, I mean, I think we have enough, uh, good enough data to just like make uh, informed decisions, anyways. I'm like, I'm not gonna miss having all of them, to be honest. Nor like, I wasn't even planning on like digging through all 900 or 1,000 lists, anyways, to you know form a meta game expectations or whatnot. I'll I'll use my own views. <laughs> Well, I'm just trying to wonder if, like, let's, uh, like, these other tournaments, like, let's say the F2F Tour uh, tournaments, if, if they get bigger, uh, if people are going to be, like, you know, looking at that because they're going to have more, more matchup percentage uh, data to get from if, well, it really depends on, it would have to land on us to do more of a parsing through the deck list, which we did do for one of our last tournaments, the one in, I think, Saskatoon, or one of our recent tournaments where we actually decided to break down every deck into an archetype. And, but uh, it's not bad. People love that stuff. Like, you make that pie chart uh, with all the different decks. People love to look at that. And like, like you said, John, uh, people misuse, misuse that data easily, but at the same time, it's too easy to, I guess, just jam uh, whatever's top performing uh, and then have it have certain decks be irrelevant way too fast for it to be interesting. So that is the strong counterpoint. 
Um, this stuff, like the hiding data thing was always weird to me for, from a few years back and, and talking to John about like the days of online poker and how you used to be able to track everyone's stats. And now to keep it interesting in that world, they, some sites have decided to just completely make it anonymous tables where you sit and you don't know who you're playing with or to completely eliminate hand history recordings. So it's, it is interesting, not only in magic, but in other industries where we're seeing why, how we need to hide or eliminate data to keep things more interesting. Right, John? Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head here. Um, I think the answer is always going to be it depends, but generally that's that would be uh, where I would start. Right. I think we, we can go go to your tournament. So uh, a first strike, a very good hardcore first strike fan from the beginning messaged me and quoted Andy in an episode saying that he was 99.9% to play five color mizzet and message me he's like what gives what gives andy tell us the process that got you to switch off your pet deck um it just it got basically the inverter got popularized and uh with inverter popularized it's really hard to interact with that deck on the stack so the niv mizzet is both not fast enough to kill the deck in like to prevent the combo and not interactive enough to prevent the combo that it just cannot reasonably have a good matchup against Inverter. And I thought that Inverter would be the most played deck. And so I decided that uh, I don't think I can play the deck for the tournament. And the thing is, this is pre-Brussels and Nagoya. I was going to play Niv-Mizzet. If I went to Brussels or Nagoya, I would have played Niv-Mizzet. And it's uh, unfortunate that things moved so fast and in like such a drastic way because of the particular way the Inverter deck functions that it wasn't, uh, I don't think Niv-Mizza was reasonably playable as like a good option if I wanted to value success at the Pro Tour for myself. So I had to switch and I tried a couple decks. I tried Saltite Delirium, but it sort of suffers from the same problems as Niv with not being fast enough and not interacting that well with the combo because the inverter deck kind of just invalidates a lot of mid-range strategies or, or at least weakens them a ton. And so I decided to uh, just play the blue-black inverter deck after I 5-0'd one league. <laughs> and how did it feel during, during the tournament? I, th like, I, f I felt like the deck was busted. It felt like the deck was the best or second best deck in the room for sure. And like, there's a lot of little variations you could do to your list. But like, I look back on my deck list and I think I made some really good decisions. And I think there's some things that like maybe I would redo. But I don't think... Uh, I would change too much about it. So I feel pretty happy with where I ended up on uh, with Blue Black Inverter. Um, John, I know in, in the First Strike private chat, uh, you and Andy had one of the bigger debates you two had was how fast people were going to be able to switch based on results. Uh, hindsight being 2020, how did you feel? Do you think people switched uh, more than you thought they would or uh, give a little knowledge on that? Yeah, so the summer, summary is that my argument was that, yes, there's a one-week delta between the two PT and the one PT. And I kind of argued that people are generally uh, inelastic in terms of their deck, deck selection, especially with one week to go, just because of like card, uh, uh, card availability issues, as well as, you know, just having, having some level of comfort level uh, um, with certain decks and archetypes. And... 
Yeah, it, this is a bit, I guess I, I, if I had to give myself judgment, I probably did not pass my own, uh, I, I'd probably say that Andy was more right than I was. Yeah, the uh, words you're looking for are absolutely wrong. I wouldn't say absolutely <laughs> wrong, man, but I don't know. We can agree to disagree. I mean, I did, I did write, I, I did do my own metagame, uh, for my own metagame prediction, and I, I kind of adhere to my thought here, but um, I didn't think that many people would be um, comfortable moving on to like Lotus Breach, for example. It's like a very specific deck that if you're like a green-black ex expert or a control expert, like I don't think it's an easy deck to like pick up within like one week, for example. But, you know, there were definitely like drastic uh, shifts in the metagame that uh, I, I did have to account for. And in the end, I did, I did get there. But uh, more often than not, like I, I think that Andy, uh, Andy gets a score on this uh, particular round. Okay, so, so John, what was your process in figuring things out? I think at one point we, we chatted multiple times where, you know, you were look, seeing Mono Black as having high potential, and then you tried a bunch of other stuff. So, so what did you end up at and, and why? So it was kind of a, a whirlwind in terms of how we arrived at the, our own uh, conclusions here. Um, obviously, I talked to the Canadian testing group here. They had a lot of good input. Uh, I know a lot, of, a lot of them were higher, high on uh, Niv-Mizzet to start, as well as Spirits, uh, Andy, Andy included in terms of Niv-Mizzet. I also worked with some, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the really good online grinders, American <laughs> grinders here um, in our <laughs> testing chat. Um, we try to divide and conquer here. We definitely generally have the mentality of just, you know, just getting comfortable with like certain uh, areas of the um, arch archetype spectrum um, and like focus on draft mostly and let the metagame play out. I, I think we did, we did form a lot of good conclusions at the end, but the speed at which things changed was pretty incredible. Um, the Thursday, between the Thursday and the Monday where uh, PT Nagoya and the PT Brussels were held, I literally, uh, if I, you can check my ch uh, chat log, I literally like switched between like five different decks as being serious con contenders. I was starting on five column nib uh, decided that it was going to be obsoleted by some uh, decks that are efficiently going over the top of it, like uh, Inverter and uh, Lotus, uh, Lotus Breach. Uh, for example, and like uh, mono black without self-inflicted wounds. Then I, I was I asked to join the mono black aggro cabal, which has some really good thoughts um, uh, from some of the better uh, grinders online, and they had the tech of self-inflicted wounds plus rotting register to effectively attack through some of your uh, worst matchups instead of um, spawn of mayhem as well as Shadow Spear. So I think conceptually that made sense. And for maybe like 36 hours, I was like locked, locked in on uh, Mono Black Aggro. And then I started seeing what was coming out of Nagoya and Brussels. And I'm just like, uh, format's getting too interactive, getting too resilient to Mono Black Aggro. There's no way this is good. Uh, I consider Mono White Devotion, which our own Elliot uh, 48 here, he can speak to it later, uh, chose. Um, also Yama Killer, uh, a person I closely worked with for the testing, ended up uh, playing. Uh, Mono White Devotion ended up doing uh, surprisingly well at uh, Brussels and Nagoya, but I thought that there was too much of a hole um, that could not be covered against like Inverter, uh, at Lotus Breach, and Niv-Mizzet. Uh, and so Artifact was something that uh, also uh, I flagged me, uh, I caught my attention. I know Elliot was working on it for a bit. You know, fast aggro with actual turn four kill potential with uh, Delver-like characteristic to you know just like keep him off balance like for one or two turns. Also attracted me. Uh, me uh, was attractive to me, but in the end, like 
just uh, brainstorming everything and putting everything together, like I, I arrived at either inverter or Lotus Breach, and I just could not feel comfortable enough to pick up Lotus Breach within two or three days. And inverter had the pedigree as well as you know, Alexander Hain uh, was kind enough to uh, give some uh, feedback on uh, his uh, choices as well as like his uh, thoughts on the inverter himself uh, itself. So uh, that's how I ended up at. So in uh, ended up at. So in five days, I went through like maybe five, six different decks. And I was pretty, feeling pretty hopeless and clueless. Like for Constructed, I'm generally very confident in being able to um, predict our, uh, the metagame and pick the right uh, right deck. But it was really tough for Pioneer, man. I mean, let me tell you. <laughs> I love it. Um, we're going to get more into both of your tournaments, but let's, let's focus on Pioneer and go to Elliot to had a heartbreaker in the qualifier, but I think talking to you, you're really positive about the deck that you ended up playing um, during these last couple of days. Yeah, so as John sort of teased, I ended up playing Mono White in a lot of tournaments this weekend. Uh, it's something that I worked on with um, Brett Steele, who's been on the show before, um, friend of the show, as they say. Uh, basically, I showed up to our testing house with two decks in Soul and Nivmizit, and we sat down. You know, he had been posting in our Discord about this mono white deck, but I, I, you know, I didn't really trust it. I had no idea how insane it was. And he just started, like, kicking my teeth in with every deck I could throw up against him. I think I was winning, like, you know, not even most of the games I was on the play pre-board within Soul Artifact, which is just, like, was absurd to me given the rest of my testing when I hadn't played against his deck at all before. And so he just, was, you know kicked my teeth into the point of I sent out a bat signal for mono white cards and was able to get it, get it together in a day, luckily. So I had a lot of time to test. Um, and, and I think the deck is like a really good choice, possibly in the future. I, I was happy with the choice I made this weekend, but truth be told, the inverter and breach matchups aren't that good. The reason we were really happy to be playing it this weekend is we thought there would be a combined uptick in mono red and mono black aggro which this deck sort of just farms. Um, if you look at the PT data on, on websites like Metagame.io, it, it seems like it had a really poor performance. Like at least in the PT, it, was only, it only won like 39% of its matches. But it ends up, that, that ends up being like a really small sample. It's only something like 70 matches. And a lot of the specific matchups end up being coin flips where if you add one more match win to the, to the mono white side, all of a sudden, Mono White's total meta or total win rate ends up being north 50%. So I, I, you know, it was immediately a little bit disheartening to see like 39% next to the Mono White deck, but I think in the end it, it was still, you know, can be chalked up to a bit of bad luck by Mono White pilots. A and another advantage that might be going away from the Mono White, mono white deck is that it is still relatively unknown. You know, going into the weekend, everybody knew about Niv, everyone knew about Inverter, everyone knew about Breach. If you were playing those decks, you know, people knew like 70 of the cards in, their, in your deck roughly, and they knew exactly what you were trying to do and how you were going to do it. But one of the big edges we had was that not a lot of people were that familiar with the mono white deck. And that kind of showed in our testing, where when we were playing in-house in the Inverter matchup, trying to figure it out, we were we felt something like 40 to 45 percent of the matchup. It was not good, but you could punk them out with getting into the trials, and sometimes you combo them on turn four. That's kind of just how it went. The best cards against you that they had were Thoughtseize and Sensor, and Heroes Downfall. 
And then when I translated that into playing in the the W or sorry the the LCQs and the PTQ, I ended up going five and two against Inverter, which you know like yeah I was running a little hot, but these people just like weren't ready for my plan of having nine Gideons post board with four Gideon in the trials. They weren't like you know, someone told me they like shaved a sensor in the matchup. And in our testing, it was like the bee's knees. You couldn't cut that card because I had to tap out every turn in the early game. So I think that, you know, in the next week or something, if nothing gets banned, mono white could be a good choice. In two weeks from now, if a card from inverter and a card from breach gets banned, all of a sudden people are going to start playing these mono red and mono black decks again. And, you know, you're playing like a two nine for two and a five, five indestructible that gives your stuff lifelink. So those are like really good matchups. And um, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I had a heartbreak. I lost the finals of an LCQ on, on Thursday, which would have qualified me for the PT. And, you know, I had like, I felt like our whole testing house standing behind me, cheering me on in the finals as I, you know, failed to draw land four and five a couple turns in a row. So it was a bit of a heartbreak in game three against Div Mizzet, which I thought was a pretty good matchup. We have like a couple haymakers in Mastery of the Unseen in our sideboard for when, even if they can cranial extraction our Heliod, we can try to go toe to toe and outgrind them. But unfortunately, it just didn't come together for me in game three and. I had to settle for for playing the PTQ and, and the GP. Um, I'm going to ask this to all three of you. Uh, any, anything that you learned that you would have done differently um, for for the next player's tour that you guys play in? Uh, starting with you, Elliot. Uh, specifically constructed. Um, I don't know if there was anything really like that wrong with our process. I think that we did a good job of pivoting from the data we had immediately after the previous pro tours um you know of the 10 of us in our house for example we had two people on mono white two people on bant spirits one person on saltai inverter two people on mono red and three people on blue black inverter so i feel like we really did adapt pretty well like the mono red players were expecting lots of breach and inverter they had cards like collective defiance in their sideboard which was like their tech that we discovered for the inverter matchup because you could just wheel them like make them discard their hand and draw that many cards to deck them after they play inverter. Um, you know, the Bant Spirits players were there because they had a they felt they had a good breach and in inverter matchup. So, you know, I think that we we pivoted well on the information, but you know, maybe we could have I guess maybe one criticism and one thing we could do better is that maybe we can try to focus more on getting like a team deck where actually the majority of the 10 of us play it. So we end up with one really well-defined and refined list that everyone's happy on rather than having as the case is here five decks that are only semi-tuned and semi-refined um, you know especially i know that talking to brett after the tournament and after the weekend there were a few card choices where if we just had more time and more more eyes dedicated to testing the deck we might have been able to find them in time like silence is a sideboard card that we that going forward we're really interested in because it's actually really good in the breach matchup because once they bounce your hate cards you cast silence they they have to pass the turn and you can replay your hate cards and they can't rebuild uh and it's also really good in the inverter matchup because one it protects your combo from disruption when you're going for it and two um a lot of the post board games the way they play out is that you have rest in peace in play and they're forced to cast inverter of truth and thassa's oracle in the same turn so if you silence in response to the, to the inverter you win on the spot 
or in the games that don't necessarily play out that way, silence can be a time walk, which is really what you need a lot of the time in the post-board games. There's a lot of games that play out where they play inverter, they have four cards in their graveyard, let's say, and then, you know, you have not a lot of instant speed interaction short of stasis snare, which isn't good in the matchup and has to be boarded out. So you can just silence them, take a time walk, and all of a sudden you now have enough pressure to either win the game or assemble your combo. So, you know, that's something that going forward, you know, I, I, this is a call out for KYT. I sent him our list and a full sideboard guide for like the top 10 decks in the format. So if, if it's not posted anywhere, you can blame him. But if you choose to pick that up and keep going, silence is definitely a card I would consider testing in the sideboard. And one that we could have found maybe if we had more eyes on the mono white deck. I think that's, that's a, a good point. I, my question, Elliot, I wonder if it's like, if like having more eyes would come at, at a cost of not having like being able to test different matchups, right? Like if everyone's focused on one deck, they might, you might not have enough um, info from like all these other decks. So I don't know if it, uh, you know what I'm trying to say? I don't know which one, which approach is actually better. Like, like you might lose out if you are too focused. Yeah, I think it depends on the group you're with. Like, for example, for us, we had, you know, the two people that played mono red sort of have a proclivity to playing aggro decks. Um, and so, for example, I think they were like pretty locked on playing something aggro-ish in the end and it ended up being mono red for them. But if I think if you look at the strategy of a lot of the more like elite testing teams, like Team CFB, for example, historically, you know, for sure they've played all of the all of the decks and had them all proxied up and played all of the matchups a ton to flesh out their sideboard plan. And then, uh, you know, given the current structure, you submit on Wednesday night. On Thursday, if you just spend that jamming to fill out the gaps in the matchups of, you know, maybe you were playing the inverter side of a matchup and your team submitted mono white. You know, you spend the Thursday after you submitted your deck happy with mono white, learning the ins and outs of the matchup from both sides if that's not something you've gotten a chance to do. So I, I think it is really valuable to have people playing all sorts of different decks. Um, but whenever we were playing, for example, the mono white versus inverter matchup, we had somebody sitting down looking for how to improve the matchup from the mono white side and someone trying to figuring out how to improve it from the, from the inverter side. And I think if instead, you know, you play that match and, and both players are dedicated on improving just one of the decks, um, that can be a way to get valuable testing in that matchup and have both people you know, learning the ins and outs of a specific deck and then submitting the same one. Okay, what about you, John? Anything you, you, you would do again? This, like, this was your do-over from, uh, what's that word? <laughs> Fear of missing out, your FOMO from last time. Um, constructed anything you're taking away that you will apply for the next one? I mean, let's let's be honest it wasn't like fomo it was like literally me like <laughs> my first first invite i didn't have a testing group whatever blah 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 sob story was me so this time um i made sure to just network properly and just like surround myself with like uh, equally motivated and equally skilled if not better uh types of people in groups and uh, you know as i said try to try to divide and conquer a bit more um especially for a format where um it's new it's nascent and people are still trying to figure shit out i think it's very important to have the manpower and the willingness uh within the group to explore things and you know make suggestions be a problem solver rather rather than you know just like taking uh, the metagame at face value. I think uh, our group and, you know, talking talking with people from um, 
a Canadian testing group, uh, for example, and shout out to Brett, for example, who was kind enough to reach out to me um, on the Monday before when I was panicking the hell out about which deck to play. Um, he had recommended White Devotion and it was clear that he had put a lot of time in it. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, I just, we had a lot of people with a wider range than me try different things, which was very helpful. Um, if I could change something here, um, I guess at least in my uh, testing group here, we didn't actually do targeted testing. We mostly did, did uh, just uh, leaks and prelims and, and downloaded download thoughts and changes and et cetera. It, it was mostly theoretical, which I think is good, but perhaps like, you know, a day or two of full, full focus testing of matchups and tweaking and, you know, just finding out uh, what the optimal sideboarding plan is, for example, that would have been helpful. Um, also, we had a bunch of people who were um, very interested in Lotus Breach. We had initially wrote it off and then recognized it once more once Nagoya and Brussels came out with uh, Brent Voss's and Pascal Vieran's good, uh, good finishes. And I, would w I wish that we had the time or we had the willingness to try that and vet that one more time because we had multiple people that would have played it if it was really good, but I guess we didn't have enough manpower and whatnot. So, um, it's unfortunate because Pioneer is a new format and there's a lot of ground to cover. But next time, like, if there is an idea that I, I'm interested in, and to be fair, I tried a lot of things, but uh, I will try to leave um, no stones unturned, so to speak. But other than that, I'm pretty happy with uh, our process here, just in terms of getting a testing group going, having productive chatter every day, uh, taking notes, and uh, just sharing ideas and testing. So um, generally, I'm pretty happy with what, how I did, but obviously more room to improve on next time. I love this. I'll, I'll, every now and then I will test Andy. I'll be like, oh my God, this guy's putting so much work. And uh, I think ultimately the challenge is uh, most of us, are, uh, people in our situation with full-time jobs and, and we can ask for more manpower, so to speak, or more time. But I, I think the, the puzzle to solve is like trying to make the best out of the time we have. And um, I mean, when talking to you, it didn't seem like there was a moment you weren't working to improve your chances at this. So um, yeah, looking forward to see how you can improve upon that for the next one. Andy, you, you landed on one of the best two decks. So, I mean, anything that you can take away to improve yourself and construct it next time? Uh, yeah, I think the, if I could do something differently, it would be to be more vocal with my team on how much better I thought Inverter was than all the other decks. I think I should have done a better job at, like, I don't know, at least like when people are saying like, oh, I want to play Spirits because it's good against Inverter, it's good against this deck. I felt like I should tell them that I don't actually think it's that good against Inverter. And I should have been more vocal about it to like perhaps get them off of it and get them on Inverter because I think Inverter is just a better deck. And I think Inverter is actually favorable to like 50-50 against Spirits, for example. And like gotten some of the, the best players on our team also on Inverter with, with me, I think that's something I would do differently is try and be more vocal about like, I don't just think uh, Inverter is the best deck. I think it's the best deck by quite a bit and that it's quite a bit enough that you should eschew your biases unless it's like really heavy. Like I don't think we were ever getting bread off mono white. So I, I didn't really try to. And he even said he has an aversion to playing like what is the, the best deck, so to speak. Uh, but I think about like people like, Sean and uh, Sean Dollywall, Pal the cast, Mike Van is a very good player. I feel like I wish I told them more that Inverter was just much better 
than Spirits, in my opinion. Because I think uh, we would have had a, perhaps a better list if all of us were on it. I liked the, our list, but I think it could be even better if we were all on it. All right, we're going we're to skim a little bit a bit. John, it's, it's no secret you pride yourself in Constructed, and you tweet out multiple times that you know, the big hole in your game that you wish to fill up is limited. So how did it actually go at the tournament, and, and what are you looking to do moving forward? Yeah, so unlike last time, I'm actually pretty happy with the way it drafted. And at the very least here, just like listening to like Lords of Limited or watching the ham TV and whatnot, like I feel like I, I leveled up infinitely more from when I um, just scrubbed out a, a PT Dominaria. And the draft I made, uh, the two drafts that I did, day one, day two, spoiler, I did day two. Um, I think that I actually did navigate pretty well. And when I show my, um, de my deck, I, People agreed mostly that this is like like a two one deck or like a three zero deck even for my first first, uh, first one. The problem I have really is like the gameplay and you know it's like my 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 uh, career arc so to speak in Magic is so backwards where you're just like starting off with like some degenerate combo that's not even like considered Magic and working your working backwards into you know just learning about how to maintain a board state you know what attacks are good planning X turns ahead and whatnot that's like the real problem but at the very least I'm like, pretty proud of like navigating a pretty tough um, uh, uh, draft format I think where like it's like normal heuristics don't apply in terms of staying open in two colors and whatnot and you should how you should be like how you should be getting deeper into a color, for example, and you know the common pools are pretty flat after like like the first four, four or five picks. Certain archetypes like are very good with certain cards only, etc. So like I, I feel like the biggest level up for me was like like doing very well at draft and like reading signals and like drafting the way the, the lane you're supposed to, and two just like actually trying to draft a constructed deck rather than drafting the best card and like just like amalgamating a deck of two color good stuff which um it works in some formats but certainly not this one so uh spoiler alert i went 0-3-1-0-3-1-2 in uh my draft for one five total but i feel <laughs> like i deserved a better fate um my day two pod had three dream trawlers and Jonathan Skenick actually hate drafted one Dream Trawler, uh, which was pretty absurd to me. Um, I, I drafted a pretty good looking, if not absurd, Red White Heroes deck in day one. And I unfortunately lost to Polukonos. That card is very good. And then in day two, I drafted a pretty open, like green white aggro deck. But um, I, I played against some really good players, Jake Nagro, uh, Sam Party. I lost to them. And the other match I lost because uh, I. I beat Dream Trawler once, but not twice. So, say la vie. Elliot, I didn't know if you were looking in disgust or that was part of the sneeze. <laughs> oh, it was the sneeze. <laughs> um, Andy, uh, I mean, unfortunate, one, one of the earlier messages in, in the uh, First Strike private chat was uh, how, how not well you did in the first couple of games, uh, your limited portion. So how, how did you feel about your limited game and um, even if the, the results didn't bear, bear fruit? Uh, I feel like I've, in the last couple of years, I've like gotten pretty good at limited, but uh, I don't know. So like I drafted what I would consider to be a good deck. Like I drafted a deck that I would say on average two ones that could one, two, but also could three out for sure. It was like triple Daxos, triple uh, White Chimera, 
a crow in war, like Heliod's intervention, and like some some filler. And I thought the deck was uh, legitimately good. And uh, then I lost the first round to like Nadir Kraken and mana issues. I lost the second round to just double mana issues and the third round to double mana issues. And like the first, I basically showed a bunch of people my hands. I tried to explain to them like, this is what I kept, should I mulligan? Should I have built my deck differently? Like I played 11 planes and six mountain and I missed on double white five times. And I like showed them the hand. It was like a single white with like the combo of Daxos and Chimera but also I had like the Acroan War and two mountains. So like, I'm not sure if you can mulligan that. And uh, like, it's potentially possible that I, uh, I blew it and I should be mulliganing those. I should be playing 12 planes, but I kept asking people and I wanted some genuine advice because I feel like I must be doing something wrong because my deck looked good and I did not win at all. And it seems like it's possible. I just got unlucky. I hate to blame it on such a thing, but uh yeah, I think I drafted a deck that I liked, and I'd be happy to have that deck at a PT again. Just didn't work out. John, with your limited game, I think you were one of the first, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to take uh, Sam Black's, uh, cur- like, trying out uh, these this coaching, and uh, you you decided to partake in this. I think me and Andy, or it was Elliot or Andy where we were watching. It's like, oh, my God. He's disagreeing with every one of John's picks. Um, but John, how did you feel about that experience and, and that coaching uh, overall? I, I think it was, it was excellent. Not, not, not that I didn't expect anything less, but it also made me feel like how unbelievably behind I am. You know, like <laughs> I was saying this, like, hey, you know, KYT, I think I can outwork and outresource people and, you know, come up with the best, uh, best deck, best list and constructed you know, like the Reddit hive mind or the Twitter hive mind will help me do that and construct it. But how the hell am I supposed to, you know, make up for the full, uh, against make up for like the 10, 15 years of draft that people have uh, that, go, that still play at the PT. And like, it really showed like Sam clearly is very smart, very deliberate, you know, every, like every like micro decision that might be, um, that might make a, dif- uh, a difference in deck building is considered even as early as pack one, pick two, for example. And it was just like a really good experience, like listening to him and just like, you know, I didn't mind at all that he was like disagreeing with a lot of my, uh, a lot of my decisions. Like for example, the draft I went through with him, like he basically would have gone an entirely different, um, <laughs> different direction. So it's one thing to be like two, three cards off your, uh, build for your lane and your draft, but it's an entirely another thing to be in a completely different uh, lane than you, like what Sam would have been, for example. So it was good. Um, it, it, I did take advantage of like the early bird special, like the forty dollars uh, $40 per hour uh, pricing. Now it's a hundred. Um, I'm not sure like if it's worth a hundred dollars uh, per hour, just mo- mostly because like I don't think a lot of things uh, in life are worth a hundred dollars per hour, but. I really have nothing but good things to say about like how excellent uh, Sam is and how his, how good his coaching is. I think it was just great to see um, to see from for for everyone else to see it for basically free to see you get coached and and um, it's in in an industry and in stuff like magic or poker where you're not entirely sure how good the, the player is 
um, you know, it, did they get lucky or, or you're not, you're not like super sure about everyone, but it was pretty clear that, that to me, at least that Sam Black is very likely far better than you at limited. So it was great to, to see that. And I, I don't know, you, you also asked me after, like, after the coaching, what I thought about the value and stuff. And, and that's really hard to evaluate because it's just, it's hard to, it's one of those things. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Jerry Thompson, Jerry T, where he's like, you know, he'd, he'd write the book, but the amount of effort and the price that he would charge, he would feel really bad because that w- that's what it would take for it to be worth his time. I think it's, it's some, like for coaching, for a lot of these players, even Alex, Alex Hain would tell me, like, he would have to set it pretty high to be worth his time. And so you're, you're in this, like, spot where, you know, it might not be, it, it needs to be worth it for them to do it, but then you might not be in a space to be able to afford or, or make the most out of the, the investment that you give it. So it's a tricky spot uh, for sure. Yeah, so ju- just to like summarize here, like this might be a spot where um, both on the de- demand side and the supply side here, the value of the service offered versus the opportunity cost of the hour of the coach and the delta between that and like the value, the dollar value of one hour of coaching that someone like me gets out of coaching. Like, there might be a delta there such that like there might not be a room there might not be room in magic coaching. Like for example, if you get coaching in poker, the expected value of improvement is like uh, going to be in like dollars, right? Like thousands right. of dollars, hopefully, or dollars per hour. Whereas magic, it's like the payoff is a bit less. So like, I don't mind paying like that, that sort of uh, price in um, for my hobby because I do want to get better and I do have a regular job, but I can see it not being a, a, a viable case for like some other people, for example. So it's a, it's a tricky topic to have. Yeah, it's super tricky and it can't always, uh, of course, as you know, already can't think strictly of dollar signs just because like people get like chess coaching or dancing coaching. You just like want to get better at your hobby. So again, can't look at it from that, only that lens. So, I mean, it is interesting, but what I do, as I've always said on this show and multiple episodes, what I do like to see is the um, increase of these type of things because it means the game is growing and, and everything's getting better like more coaching more of these type of sessions on on twitch and, and things like that is is just a positive thing and and um hey they, they say magic's trending upwards and and i look i look forward to seeing more of this type of content and i mean a lot of people have started their, their own own sites um and i don't know how long they'll last if it's monetarily feasible. Like uh, I'm thinking about like the site that Sifka Strasky started, but basically all I'm trying to say in summary is that I hope all these independent ventures and all these coaching things um, become more popular. Because I think that's, that's good for someone like me that's, that's basically in the space for so long and intend to be in the space for, for a while, a long time to go. Um, so now with this, let's, let's wrap this up with this big tournament behind us. We're going to go around, uh, all three of you for this last question. What is next for you and what is the, the, the focus? So Elliot, here we go. Is it, is it some random six hour <laughs> tournament? <laughs> no, it's local. I have a WPNQ final this weekend, which is, uh, Theros sealed. Um, and then the top eights draft. I'm I'm really not a fan of the sealed format just because I'm I'm not a fan of giving people three extra packs to open QR best sea god. But I'm throwing my hat in the ring and I, I'll accept one dream trawler. 
And then, um, you know, in a similar vein, I think this draft format is a bit worse than people are giving it credit for. Uh, I think every game where the, you know, people play at most one rare and mostly uncommons and uncommons, the gameplay seems fantastic and great and I enjoy it. Uh, but then as soon as someone plays a QR Best of Sea God or Dream Trawler or a Crow and War or Pelucridos or Deer Kraken, then the list goes on and on of how many rares and mythics just feel absolutely unbeatable and unfun to play against. Uh, I think it really detracts from the format a lot. But regardless, I am registering for this sealed tournament and I am looking to, to get to Charlotte, North Carolina for the next players tour. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is the question I forgot. So, uh, I'll, I'll ask all of you this, but, but with you, Elliot, uh, people were talking about, oh, how Nagoya and Brussels didn't feel like a pro tour. And then other people are saying Phoenix felt more like a pro tour. Uh, quick, quick words on, on how you felt about Phoenix. Uh, so from a, a viewer perspective of watching Nagoya and Brussels, it's watching it certainly felt like a pro tour from like sitting at my home and watching the coverage just because of the structure of it. That's, that's the only exposure I have to that format is through the pro tour. So that's what it felt like. And, and you know, being there at the venue as it was going on, it's just, it was just a pro tour next to me, like, you know, 20 feet away as I'm watching my friends is a pro tour going on. And I've heard some, some, rumorings some mumblings on twitter that maybe john and andy can corroborate of like the player quality was much lower than the average or they felt it was at least the pro tour um so i don't know if that's necessarily true of, of letting in you know ex expanding the tournament from the top 400 in the world to the top 900 in the world if all of a sudden the player quality diminishes significantly i don't know if that's necessarily true but to me it's a pro tour right andy what, what did you think did it feel like a pro tour and what's next for you? Uh, it definitely felt like a pro tour without a doubt. It was like, yeah, I, it was the exact, it felt exactly the same as the pro tour I was just at. The only thing that felt lackluster is like the top eight announcements sucked. <laughs> and like the other ones are awesome. They're like, it's all like cleared out and they do like the top eight announcement where they're like, it's Marshall Sutcliffe sitting there and doing like the big like hype up and everything. And it's awesome. It's a super intense great moment to watch and this time they just took eight people behind a curtain <laughs> i don't like i didn't know who top aided and that's sad and sucked but uh, other than that the pro tour was just it felt like another pro tour and uh so what's next for me is uh probably the the face-to-face the -face team trios part of the face-to-face -to -face tour i think it's probably the the most prestigious tournament series I can think of. And uh, I'll be playing in the trios tournament, hopefully with uh, my main man, Kale Thompson and uh, young Devin Giles. <laughs> it's team. Uh, instead of standard, they decided to sort of ruin it and it is now pioneer modern legacy. Yeah. So now someone has to play the horrific format of legacy with underworld breach legal, but I don't make the rules. That's good to hear. Um, what, what, what about you, John? So, so let, I'll try to make this quick here. I think people are asking the wrong questions. People are always, the first thing people say is, did this feel like the old pro tour or not? And my answer is, why the hell does it matter? It's not supposed to be replicating the pro tour. They're, they're clearly uh, like 
like bifurcating between like like a lower PT and like a higher PT, so to speak. You know, like this is basically like an, uh, a GP plus or RPTQ plus, and a PT finals is way more prestigious than the old PT, right? So like, why does it matter? Like you got you guys are not comparing apples to apples, and I think it's a very unfair comparison to make. As for the atmosphere, I I think it was fine. Like I think it does it feel pretty uh, prestigious, like especially in day two, like. Everywhere you look, like there were like day one may have had like a bit more like dead money, but the cream definitely rose to the top. And day two, when I where I played, like if you look if you look to the left and don't look to the right, like it was all crushers and killers. Like I had no free wins, and you know like there's no there's no free squares, and you know it was tough. And I I love to see it. As Andy said though, like top eight announce announcement is a bit of a letdown. Um, maybe they can change that. I do like the top eight announcements here. You know, like people people like the Ma Michael Bondi dance, for example, which is now a, a famous GIF. You know, people are just getting super excited. I and mean, we'll see that at the PT finals, I believe, but that's something that's definitely memorable. Maybe it's worthwhile for this, uh, for the regional PTs, maybe not. Um, as for what's next, uh, I booked three. Um, oh God. What? <laughs> I'm getting hyped. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying like I, I previously booked three GPs, right? Austin, <laughs> New Jersey, and uh, Phoenix in hopes of trying to get on the fractional invites train, you know, which is uncharacteristic for me because I don't usually book a lot of travel for Magic. I came up, I, I came, uh, I ended those uh, this month with exactly 0% of fractional invites, but I did get a PT min cash, which is fine. I'm still going to be trying to get on the fractional train, I guess, and go, go infinite here. Um, so even though Reno, like even though Reno isn't the most like favorite, most like luxurious spot to go to, or limited is not my uh, format, I'm probably gonna try to go there and try to pick up some fractional invites and otherwise, I don't know, wherever the next uh, PTQ or whatnot is, my fire is uh, uh, reignited. It was already reignited before, but you know now that I've finally made the cash. Like just for viewers out there, the um, the Pro Tour um, Players Tour Phoenix paid out to 110. And I was 110th, so clearly I'm blessed. <laughs> but now I want to do better. I want to get more than two wins at a, a, a PT draft, and I'm just going to keep working at it and be better. But yeah, Reno, and then like whatever random GPs I can get and try to travel as much as I can. You took home $700 USD. Does that make a dent in your expenses for the weekend? What are you talking about? I'm not a huh? I'm responsible. I don't drink. I don't go to casinos. I don't make like irresponsible bets. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> hey, John, did the Patriots win the Super Bowl? <laughs> they did last year, and that's what matters. Right after my Star City Games uh, SCG win, I, got, I took the 9 to 1 ticket and I made like 900 bucks. So suck it. <laughs> I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch. Uh... The Super Bowl, but it was quite good. Uh, just basically, what a way to script it for Patrick Mahomes, or i.e. keep keep cap stake to to take it all down. It was uh, man, it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable. Um, I guess uh, we'll leave it at that. I'm excited to see what happens in 2020 and and, and tabletop. These are questions that's constantly swirling in my head, and um, because it's it's big change the system constantly and when they give like the f2f tour let's say or, or tour finals that seed into the players tour um you know we we don't know as organizers like are they going to take it away in in a few months like there's a lot of questions uh in my head that i don't really know what they they plan and i wish i had a full-fledged 
or not even a full-fledged image, but just like a, a better idea. But uh, I look forward to excitement in 2020. Mobile client, everything seems to be great. It seems to be a good time. Good time to be in magic. And with that, we will see you all uh, next week. Hopefully, I'll get some guests. Uh, eventually, going to get uh, Corey Burkhardt actually owes me uh, an interview because I've, I've asked him for, for a while now. He said he'd come on. But uh, yeah, maybe at some point, maybe at some point. Uh, with that, everyone, bye. And we will talk to you next time.